Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. I thanks be to God that we get to gather here together and study the Word of God another Sunday. We keep going on and being faithful to the Lord despite the circumstances and despite all the good or bad things that happen in our lives. We keep doing what God told us to do and we keep going and we keep going and we keep going like good and faithful, steadfast servants. So I want to welcome you guys into my home, and I want to welcome everybody coming from all over the world. I want to, to Gospel Saving Church, thank you for joining us today. God bless you. It's good to have you. Uh, anyway, uh, here we go. We're going to pray real quick, but we're going to be in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. But if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, ask the Lord to bless the service and bless our ears and bless our hearts, and so that way we can receive what he has to say to us today. You join me, please. Lord Jesus. Dear Lord God, thank you so much for all that you do for us, Lord. Your word says that in you we live and move and have our being, Lord. And Lord, we can look up laminin and see that, Lord, it's the, like the glue, the physical glue and, and anatomy that holds all things together, Lord. And that, that laminin is the shape of a cross, Lord, in, in anatomy. And Lord, I just love you and praise you that your word is so, so deep. Lord, your word means so much. Lord, it's just not what, you know, just a few words and A, B's and C's on a, on a page, Lord. It's so deep. So, Lord, I just thank you for bringing us here today, Lord. Thank you for all your love. Thank you for all your grace. Thank you for all your mercy. And I thank you for this message, Lord. I pray that for each one of us that will ever listen to this message, wherever they'll be, all over the world, I, I pray, dear God, that as they listen, as we listen, Lord, our lives and our hearts and our minds will be transformed to to be the kind of minds and hearts that you want them to be, Lord. That, Lord, we continue to be sanctified by your word and by your Holy Spirit, Lord God. Please help us. Help us to focus today on the word I'm going to teach, Lord. Help us to focus on your word and help us to focus on what you're saying to us. And then, Lord, may we be hearers of the word. Not, may we be not only hearers of the word, but may we be doers of the word as well. We love you and we praise you, God, and we thank you. And we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, I'm going to read it. But I'm not going to read it till after my thoughts from last week. So my thoughts from last week and my sermon titled, God is Serious About Forgiveness. As I prayed about what to say from last week's message, God really put something on my heart. Because, of course, I've said this before, I'll say it again. When I first start studying for the message, I have no idea what I'm going to say. And it's like something miraculous happens. I pray, and all of a sudden, all the it's like a cup that's empty. And I think about some water, and you take this water, and you put water in a cup. And as it fills up, then, then the air goes out of the cup, and the water fills. And that's kind of what happens in my mind as I pray for the service every week. All of a sudden, stuff starts coming in. So as I prayed, God put this on my heart from last week. It's easy to look at the way in which the king, which was God in Jesus' parable, forgave that wicked servant. He wasn't wicked until after, of course, but we'll just call him the wicked servant from his, you know, 100 talents of silver, 100 talents of gold, which equated out to over $250 million to $350 billion, and think and say, well, because God has great forgiveness for me as God's child, the sin that's in my life, the sin that I may practice or that I may do, doesn't matter to God. I mean, after all, 
Look at how great his forgiveness was. I mean, that remember, the talents represent the talents of debt rep- represented the sin that's in our lives. And so that great king, which was God, came, the, the guy came to the king and he asked for forgiveness of his debt and said, or asked him to forgive him, that he would pay it all. And then the great king just forgave him all. And it's easy to think that just because the, that great king did that, then I can live any way I want because, wow, golly, God is such a great forgiver. You know, although no one will ever master a life of zero sin, no one will ever match perfection. No one will ever attain to the level of Christ until we die. And then if we're saved, we go to heaven and then we become perfect like God. Until that time, we will totally sin and we're generally probably going to sin on a daily basis. But that's not the point that bothers God. That we sin is not something that bothers God because he paid for that sin. What does bother God is when we have an attitude of I can just live any way I want. I can live in any sin that I want. I can say anything I want. I can do anything I want. I can watch anything I want. I can just do whatever sinful thing I want because God has great forgiveness for me. Well, this is dangerous. And this is a warning. God God is warning us through my mouth today and through His Word, as you're going to see. I want you to be deceived into thinking this because this kind of mindset of, oh, well, my sin doesn't matter anymore no matter what I do because God has great forgiveness for me. This mindset is a mindset of no fear of God. Okay, There's no fear of God in that. If you can just go out and do that and just sin all that you want and then come back to Jesus and be, oh, Jesus, please forgive me, the Bible says that you're not going to really get forgiven. God's not going to forgive you. Romans 6.1 says that repentance or a change of heart towards sin is a foundational elementary in the discussion of salvation. That means it's like ground zero. Repentance. Repentance towards sin. A different way to think about sin. Uh, you know, sin, I, I, I'll always sin, but boy, I need to stay away from it. Well, I need to stay away from it. I need to stay away from it. And, and then it happens. That's repentance. But living fully in it, that's not, that's not repentance. And if repentance is a foundational issue before God, then it's certainly going to matter all throughout your walk with God. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have told Christians, remember back in Matthew 18, 8 through 9, if your hand or foot caused you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's better for you to enter a life maimed rather than having two hands or two feet be cast into everlasting fire. That he's talking about just a willful act, just sinning away. And if your eye causes you to sin, a continuous sin, if your eye just keeps causing you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you. It's better for you to enter in life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into life. Or cast in, in, into the hellfire, excuse me. And Paul, if sin didn't matter in our lives, Paul wouldn't have written in Galatians 5, 24 and 25, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Notice the crucifying of the flesh. Notice Jesus saying we can't just live willfully in sin and then just think it's okay before God. Those are just a couple of the places God speaks to us on the matter of staying away from a willful life of sin. If we don't, in Hebrews 10, 26, warns us and it says if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, that means we just, I don't really care, I'm just going to do whatever I want because God lived for me. 
If we've sinned willfully after we've come to receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. So God warns us there, stay away from a willful life of sin. Oh, well, God forgave me. God loves me. Oh, well, you know, I'm good. Whatever I want to do, I can do it on up. Bible says that's no, 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 no. God showed me this after the fact. If we look at that parable last week, Jesus even showed us a picture of that same idea with that, with that servant. Remember, he had accumulated anywhere, you know, 256 to 300, 256 million to 350 billion dollars worth of debt, which was sin. You know, he had sinned and sinned and sinned and he, and God calls him to him. The king calls him to him and he forgives him. The, the, Uh, For the guy, he falls down before the king and repents. And from that repentance, the king, which is God, says, Oh, I forgive you all your debt, my son. And so he was forgiven, right? That's kind of what what happens with God. If we sin with, oh man, I blew it. We come back to God. Lord, please forgive me. Boom, we're forgiven. But then remember, that same servant went out and he found another servant that had sinned against him and he grabbed him by the throat and he threatened him and then he, when he couldn't pay when he even though he even though he asked for forgiveness the this servant that had just gotten forgiven by God wouldn't forgive him he ends up getting drawn back to God God then says you wicked servant and he takes his forgiveness from him so he was forgiven because he repented, but then when he went back and he turned back again to the sin of unforgiveness, God took away his forgiveness. God took away his salvation. Because why? Because he turned back to a willful life of sin, even though God had forgiven him a great, great, great amount. And of course, God doesn't want that for anybody. Anybody. He wants people to be saved. God wants you to have a walk with him and have a relationship with him forever unto eternity. God's forgiveness is open to anyone. I don't want you to misunderstand that. Anybody can receive it. But you cannot receive it and keep it unless you are serious about walking with Him in repentance and in a relationship. As long as you want to live your life for your own way and in your own sinfulness, however you want, and have Jesus just on the side and just expect God to forgive you, then salvation and forgiveness from God aren't there until you're ready to turn away from those things and turn to God and ask for forgiveness, and then live with a relationship and repentance type of walk with God. So it's very important, and we can't forget that. It's real easy to look at that, and God put that on my heart. So anyway, moving forward, on to our message this week. Um, title of our message, Matthew 19, 1-10, Is it legal for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason in God's eyes? So I'm going to read Matthew 19, 1-10. You guys want to read it with me? Bible says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful, you could say legal there too, for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he made them at the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. 
They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, or you could say fornication there, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So, something I want you guys to think of as I'm going along the sermon. By the title can be a little bit, I don't want to say deceiving, a little bit misleading. By the title, okay, is it legal for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason in God's eyes? Okay, we could think there and say, well, hey, as long as it's just Jesus is really only referring to a man divorcing his wife and and really not a woman divorcing her husband. Well, that in Jesus's day, women weren't really even permitted and all the way back to the Old Testament, women weren't really even permitted to divorce their husbands. Women really had in Jesus's culture and before had really no literal, no rights at all. If you go to the Arab world today, Women almost have zero rights if they, if they don't have zero at all. They have no rights. So really, the reason Jesus put it in this format and the reason they asked this question is because in Jesus' day, women weren't even allowed to divorce, to divorce their husbands. But today, of course, that's all changed. If you're not in the Arab world and you're in Free West or in America or England or Russia or wherever, any other country that's not Arab, women have a lot of rights. Women can divorce a man, a man can divorce a woman, so it doesn't matter. So as we're going along, I'm going to be changing it to not just a man divorcing his wife for any reason, but I'll be switching it to, you know, a couple or people or spouses divorcing one another. Just keep that in your mind as I go along. So he just doesn't address it because it wasn't pertinent in that day. So verse 1. What does verse 1 say to us? It came to pass when Jesus had finished saying these things that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. What things? He got done speaking. Remember all the things in chapter 18. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus warns of offenses. The parable of the lost sheep. Dealing with a sinning brother. You know, all the things I just taught about for like the last month or so. Jesus just got done saying all these things. He just got done teaching his disciples. They get done and what do they do? They changed scenery. We see it there in verse 1. They departed from Galilee, and they came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So they moved from Galilee to Judea. They had a little bit of a change of scenery. But as, of course, we read here in verse 2, they had this change of scenery, they get some company along. Verse 2 says, and great multitudes followed him. So Mark 10.1, which is the parallel scripture to this verse, tells us that as he came into Judea, multitudes started to gather around them. Multitudes were always starting to come to Jesus everywhere he went practically. He couldn't go anywhere without people just seeing what he did and seeing him around, and then they started kind of flocking to them. And so what does he do when they start coming? Verse 2, he starts to heal them. He heals them all, or he starts to heal them. You know, as Jesus taught and as he traveled, this is what he was always doing. He was teaching 
and he was healing, and he was praying, and he was really all about God's business for this three-and-a-half-year ministry that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's about three-and-a-half years of his life. And as he traveled from town to town, place to place, he taught, and then as people would gather, they'd have sick, and they'd bring their sick, and he'd heal their sick. And many demon-possessed and sick people would always come to him from wherever, you know, wherever he was, and they'd start coming to him. Jesus had a very powerful healing ministry, and it drew a lot of attention. Many times, I think, as I'm reading the scripture, he did this, he did these mighty healings, he did these great healings, just so people would be attracted to him. But I know that he's a great compassionate God, and he wants to heal people, and he loves, he loved to heal people when he was alive. So that's not the only reason we could say. But of course, you know, as he did all these healings, a lot of people would gather. People would hear about it, and they heard about it from other regions, and they'd start to gather around him, and they wanted to be healed. But, unfortunately, the more powerful works and healings he did, the more his following grew. That's the good thing. That's the good part, actually. Sorry about that. But the more the multitudes grew, the more that the followers grew, unfortunately, this part, uh, the more the attacks grew against him. As we see that here, we can read it in verse 3. So the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? He gets attacked because a lot of people around him. And you know what happens today? It happens a lot today. If, you're, if you have a very strong ministry or if, you know, if you're a very good minister, a lot of times the, a lot of the powerful ministers, you know, are go- they get attacked by this people you know, because they're doing a lot of work for God. So Jesus was doing a lot of work for God, and so he was getting attacked. He gets attacked with the question by the Pharisees, is it lawful for a man, but again, you could say anyone, to divorce his wife or their spouse, you could say, for just any reason. We'll touch on that last part in a minute. Um, I'll talk on that a little later for the, for the just any reason part. The question here, if you, if you didn't notice, the question out of Scripture is where our title of our sermon originated from. Notice here also that they didn't just come to ask him a question. It was a testful question. It wasn't just an inquiry. It was a test. Uh, there are, there's a difference. There's a, there's a different attitude of the heart between a test and a question. An inquiry or a question is generally going to be humble. It's going to be in the form of a question. Hey, um, would you mind if I asked you something? Hey, I, I'm curious about something. A test is going to be very aggressive. It's going to be attacking, you know, it's going to be attackful. It's going to be challenging. It may still be in the form of a question, but it's going to be aggressive. You know, you're going to feel, you're going to feel like they're coming against you. And that's how these guys here came against Jesus. They didn't just come up and say, hey, by the way, teacher, yeah, we're, we're curious about something. Can you help us understand this thing about marriage? No, they came in an aggressive, attackful way. So, you know, at this point, I was really, I meditated on this over and over and over this week as I thought about this, and especially in my situation, my past, and what's happened to me in my life. I just think how sorry I feel for Jesus. Because what did he do? What was his ministry, what did his ministry consist of? Helping people, teaching people, loving people, healing people. That's what his ministry consisted of. Loving others, helping others being faithful to others. And what do we see over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture? 
he gets attacked. People abandon him. He gets attacked again. People abandon him some more. He gets attacked. He gets attacked. He gets attacked. He he gets used. People come to him and they only want to eat. There's a situation in John where he's, he's, you know, feeding these people and then him and the disciples leave and then the people that are looking for him, they cross, they finally found him and he goes, you don't want me because you want to hear what I have to say. You want me because you want to eat. You want something from me. That's the only reason why you want to be by me. So, I mean, I just feel sorry for Jesus because in my walk with the Lord, a lot of that has happened to me too. All I do is love people. I care about people. I want to teach people God's truth. I want to help people. I've laid my hands on, I've helped heal people. You know, you've been God's instrument to heal somebody. And yet, over and over and over and over and over and over again, I've been attacked, I've been abandoned, and I've been, people have just used me, and I really know what Jesus feels like. And so I, I just can't help but feeling sorry for Jesus as I read this section of Scripture, and these guys came and they started attacking him. Now, you know, On the good side, despite their coming, despite their being aggressive, despite their attacking him, despite their challenging him here with this test about if it's okay for people or couples to divorce for just any reason in God's eyes, it's actually an important question. And so, you know, as anything, God says, you know, he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So Jesus turned this attacking question into a very good thing and into a very informative, you know, teaching here because they came in attacking, but then he gave the real truth. Divorce affects a society and a culture so much, and it doesn't happen in a good way either. Divorce wrecks families ruins children's lives, ruins people's lives. Divorce just is destroying this world. In America, divorce is an epidemic. You might even call it a pandemic. The divorce rate here in America for first marriages is 41 to 50%. That means that in a first marriage for people, anywhere from 41 to 50%, almost half of the couples that are coming together for marriage are getting divorced. But it doesn't get any better. We go on to the second marriage. They won't, we're going to make it better. Second marriage, divorce rate, 60 to 67%. So we'll, we'll try it again. We're going to try it again. We'll make it better the second time. Nope. 60 to 60, 70, 60 to 67%. And the third marriage doesn't get any better the longer you go on. The more you keep getting married, it doesn't get any better. We'll talk about that later. Third marriage, 73 and 74%. So by the third marriage of most people, three quarters of them about are getting divorced again. So it's a, a, a pandemic. It's an epidemic in America. Divorce is ruining our country. I'm not sure about the rest of the world. So saying all this about divorce, but back to our question in our text, how does Jesus answer these religious leaders' question of, is it okay to divorce a spouse for just any reason in God's eyes? According to Jesus here, who spoke as God's direct representative while on earth in the flesh. So you could say his answer was literally God's answer, what God would have given. He answers them in verses 4 through 6. And he says to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then... They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, 
What God has joined together, let not let not man separate. So we have a short answer and we have a long answer. I'm going to give them both. Short answer, what did Jesus say? Is, is divorce legal in God's eyes to get a divorce between a man and a woman? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's not God's will for you to get married and then divorce. Because, short answer, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Period. The end. In God's eyes, God wants when you get married, stay married and work it out no matter what. That's God's heart. But exactly why? Why does he say? I want to break down the long answer. Jesus gives us the long answer here in verses 4 through 6. Let's look at it in depth. First off, I just want to point this out, that in these verses 4 through 6, Jesus points out not his own words. He points out God's words from the very beginning. This is not just what Jesus thinks. Jesus just doesn't come up with, oh, I think... No, the verses 4 and 5 are actually right from Genesis, right from the very beginning where God made man and God made woman. And these are things that God told Adam and Eve. They, he told man from the very beginning. So this is not Jesus' words that we're reading. So the first reason why God doesn't want divorce, verse 4, God made them man and woman. And for this reason, we're supposed to leave our fathers and mothers and we're supposed to come together and be joined. So for the very reason that God made us man and woman, that for that very reason, God says, I never want you to get a divorce. That's why you get married in the first place. But on a side note, I love this section of scripture because not only does Jesus tell us, no, it's not okay in God's eyes to get married for any reason, for whatever, for any reason, for just for any reason. He also covers a couple other, you know, subjects, topics that are very pertinent to our country right now in America, 2014. What, what can we see here? He says here that the very first reason we're not supposed to get a divorce is because God made them man and woman. Well, in our world today, people have the question, well, is homosexuality okay? Are two men being together or two women being together okay? Well, what did Jesus say here? How did God make people in the very beginning? Did he say that he made man and man? Or, or did he say, oh, from God from the beginning made woman and woman? No, he didn't. He said from the very beginning, he who made them made them man and woman. Period. The end. In God's eyes, a man and a woman are supposed to come together, and that's it. No two men and no two women. Homosexuality is an abomination unto God. Look at he says, and for this very reason, verse 5, he says to them, for this very reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we see, actually in a second here, we see another huge question Jesus tackles in this section of Scripture. Who is marriage for? Marriage is not for two men or two women. Marriage is for a man and a woman. Jesus said, for this very reason, you're joined together, man and a woman. That's why you get married. That's who marriage is for. Period. The end. 
That's, those are some huge questions in our society today. People are like, well, that's okay. You know, God made me this way. Yeah, God made you a man and God made you a woman. It's your choice whether you want to go, you know, if you're a man, if you want to be with a man or a woman, you want to be with a woman. That's not God's heart of desire. God's heart of desire is for a man to be with a woman and a woman to be with a man and a man and a woman to get married, period, the end. And there's no other, no other you know, union in God's eyes. There's no other togetherness in God's eyes. Second reason why it's not okay for a divorce, this reason, verse 5, I just read it over, I'm not going to read it again. He, he says, for this very reason, you shall become together and you shall become one flesh. What is he saying? What happens when a man and a woman come together in marriage? Well, they're going to have sexual intercourse. And what's going to happen from that result? Most, most of the time, they're going to have little children. They're going to have babies. So the second reason God doesn't want divorce is because man and woman come together, they get married. Second reason, they come together, they have children. Without man and woman coming together to have children, our race would die. People would not would no longer exist because guess what? There would be no children to precede us when we were to die and grow old and to die. We were made, God made man and woman for procreation. Look at what he says in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And what's the very first charge God gives to them? And God says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So what did God make? He made man and woman. They came together, supposed to have, you know, be married. And then they're supposed to have children. Period. The end. Come together, procreate, fill the whole earth, and man's have dominion over the whole earth. There's no, God gave no ability for two men or two women to have children naturally. In today's sick society, of course, medical science have, has come up with a way for, you know, people not to be able to, you know, where two men and two women can have babies, but it's still got to, a baby's got to come from a woman's womb, has to come from a woman's egg. No man can produce an egg. If a woman didn't exist, children wouldn't be, we wouldn't have children, they wouldn't go on. We would, a race would die. So naturally, by God's order, women are supposed to have the babies, men are supposed to be the men, the, hu- the husbands and the dads, and the women are supposed to be the wives and the mothers. And that's it, that's what God sees And period, the end. But lastly, tells, Jesus tells us there's another reason why we, when we become one flesh, it's actually just for more than just children. Did you know that? It's, it, Jesus said in verse 6, he kind of differentiates and he said, So then, there are no longer two but one flesh. That's a statement. They, meaning the husband and wife, are no longer two, but they become one. They become one flesh. So the third reason for no divorce is, is God is saying to us here that when we get married, we literally become one. He no longer sees us as two people, but as one type of person, one couple, one unified unity. When two people get married, he sees them literally as one flesh. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, that the wife has does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority of his own body, but the wife does. Paul kind of contributes to what Jesus said here. When you get married... 
And I've talked to a brother about this before, and I've seen this myself. When you start, when you get married, and you know, man and woman coming together, and you start to do things together, and you start to get intimate with one another, and you start to talk together, it's literally like you become one. Because if you ever lose that, if a spouse dies, or I know a brother who's had a divorce, his wife left him, and it was unfaithfulness, and it was a it was a legal thing in God's eyes. It's literally it's literally like a piece of you dies. When that woman or that man leaves or you guys are no longer together or one dies, it's, it's like you lost part of yourself. And people can't describe it other than to say that. It's like I lost piece of myself when they died or when they left. It's, so you literally, in your mind, and in your soul, in your heart, you become one. And believe it or not, outside of God, in marriage, if you've ever been to a wedding ceremony, whether religious or not, what did the justice of the peace say? What did the priest say? What, well, whoever married you, what did they say? Because people even know this innately. God put this in men's hearts to know about this unity that he brings together with a man and a woman. What Have you ever heard? It goes a little something like this. We've joined together to celebrate this union between George and Mary or Paul and you know Tina or whatever. We, don't, we come together for this unity of this couple, to celebrate this union or unity. Well, the definition of the word unity is the state of being one. Oneness. The word unity is actually from the uh, Latin, and it's I believe it's unitate or unitis or unus. And it's literally, the definition is one. So when we come together and we get married, people actually become one with one another. That's just incredible. So just recapping, according to Jesus, no divorce for for just any reason because of God made us man and woman. We're supposed to leave our father and mother and be joined together. We're supposed to procreate, make children, fill the earth. That's number two. And number three, because we literally become one type of flesh before God. We become unified in God. So not just any divorce for just any reason because of those three reasons. And then Jesus finishes with verse 6 where he says, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. So in God's eyes, once a man and a woman are married, nobody should break that up. So no divorce for just any reason, and that's not God, it's just not God's will for people to just be getting a divorce for just any reason. But remember, these religious leaders didn't just come to Jesus wanting to know this question because they were just curious. Hmm, is it okay? You know, we're just wondering. No, they remember, they came in attacking. They came with this attackful question. But really, guess what? Do you really think that they needed to ask this question? I mean, these are the religious leaders of Jesus's day. They knew the scriptures. They, most Pharisees, most religious leaders had memorized the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Torah, which is this section about marriage is in Genesis chapter 1. And, and more places too, but Genesis 1 is where we find where God's plan is for man and woman. Do you think they really needed to know the answer to this question? They knew verbatim. They were taught to learn, memorize the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah. They didn't really need to know. 
being the religious leaders, the spiritual leaders of the people, they knew the scripture and they really already knew the answer, but they were really trying to test Jesus. They were trying to trap him in a contradiction against the law of God or against Moses so that they could have a reason to accuse him of wrongdoing and having and have an action taken against them. So what's their response to Jesus' biblical answer? Jesus gives them the answer right out of the scriptures that they study. Right out of the word of God that they had memorized. Read verse 7. Their response is, They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Notice the trap. They knew he was going to answer with the biblical question because they knew Jesus taught the Bible. So then they come back and they think, we got him. They, we got checkmate. In case you didn't know, they're referring to Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, where Moses talks about this certificate of divorce, where he talks about allowing divorce for the children of Israel. They bring up a good point. You know, Moses did bring forth divorce, though. And I'm sure that they believe that they had checkmate on Jesus. If you've ever played chess, if you're playing chess and you get your opponent in a good move and you get into a corner and you check or checkmate, you think, I gotcha. I gotcha. I broke you down. I've won. There's no way you can get around this question. How are you going to answer? Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Come on. And I'm sure they're sitting there going, all right, Jesus, what are you going to say? Because, oh boy, we've got him trapped now. So do they have him checkmated? Have they got checkmate on Christ? Absolutely not. Jesus always had the counter move. And no matter what was brought to him, Jesus always had the perfect, perfect, perfect answer. He always had the perfect answer to shut their mouths. And if you look at the end of this section of Scripture here, which is either ten or verse 10 or 12, you don't have a reply to the next part of his answer to these guys because they just, they're flabbergasted. We read about it in other parts of the Bible where they come to Jesus and they come to attack him. They come aggressively to attack him. And what happens? He answers them and they just shut up and walk away because they can't say anything. So it probably was no fun to play chess with Jesus either because he probably knew every move you were going to make and, you know, probably couldn't answer you. So, same as here. If you go to the end of the section, they could not answer. So his reply, his answer to their weak reply about Moses, verse 8, he says to them, verse 8, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, speaking to them, but really it would have been their fathers, but their hearts were hard too, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So what did he say? He said, Moses allowed it. Yes, I know that. But you know what? It was never God's will that that be done. Moses, remember, was just a sinful man like me or you. Moses made mistakes. Although Moses heard from the mouth of God, God still allowed Moses to lead the children of Israel. So although Moses allowed the people of Israel to do it, doesn't mean that in God's eyes it was okay. So we're still at the end of verse 8. We're still at no divorce for just any reason in God's eyes. Now, we do read of just one exception where God does allow divorce in verse 9 here by Jesus. We actually never read about it in the Old Testament. We never read about the fact that God allows a divorce for any reason. Uh, but we do read Jesus kind of addending on, or addending, addendum, however you want to say that, addending on to what you know God says here. He says, verse 9, And I say to you, 
Notice I, not God, but he was God, so this is God speaking. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality. Again, we can read this sexual morality or immorality as fornication too. What is fornication? Fornication is sexual intercourse between people not married to each other. So the only exception for divorce in God's eyes is unfaithfulness or fornication. Or in other words, where somebody, your spouse, whether you're the man or the woman, whether your spouse fornicates or is unfaithful to you with another man or woman, whatever that may be, that's the only okay to get a divorce in God's eyes. So important note here, though, does... Because Jesus gave us the, we say the out of, if our spouse were to cheat on us, is it, is it just God's commandment here? God says, as a charge, you must divorce your spouse if they cheat on you? No, we don't read about that at all. Jesus just says that that's an exception. You can get a divorce if your spouse cheats on you just because it's unfaithfulness. And God knows, you know, if that spouse has been unfaithful, then you don't have to continue to stay with them because they don't want to be with you. There is something that people have come up with today. It's like a little ministry that's out there. It's called Standing for Your Marriage. I know a sister in the Lord that is standing for her marriage. Her husband uh, left her and uh, he cheated on her, I'm sure, plenty of lots of times, and yet she still decides to stand for her marriage. That means she's just... Hoping and, and, and hoping in the promises of God that no, that no matter what, God will change his heart and bring him back to her. So she won't get a divorce. She won't accept a divorce. She stays married because she's standing for her marriage. But if you want to, if you can, if you just can't stand it, you know, if your spouse cheats on you and they're just completely unrepentant and they have no desire to be with you, then God does give an okay to get a divorce and, and, it, and it's not sin to you if you go ahead and get a divorce if there's unfaithfulness or if there's been cheating. Is that what God wants still, though? Does God really want men and women to be cheating on one another with other people? Does God really want that? And he knows that, you know, if that happens, then people are going to want to get divorced. Is that still God's will? No. God hates divorce. We'll read about that in Malachi a little bit later. But God hates divorce. Again, as I said earlier, it destroys families, destroys homes. It's destroying our country. It's destroying morality. God hates divorce. But if a person does get divorced and marries another for any other reason than unfaithfulness, Jesus says to here, or says to us here in the rest of verse 9, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Yikes. And this would become practicing of adultery too. This would be the practice of adultery because guess what? If you get married to somebody and they've cheated you know, and they've left their spouse without the the stipulation of unforget or unfaithfulness there, you're living every day in this adultery that Jesus talks about here. So he says no matter whether you divorce outside of unfaithfulness and get remarried, or whether you marry another that's been divorced, again, without the stipulation of unfaithfulness, you are in the active practicing of adultery. 
Adultery, adultery, adultery. Paul writes to us, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, how important is it that we don't practice this adultery? Or if we are, we better hurry up and get out. He says to us in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, do you not know that the, un, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not perceive, no, do not be deceived, neither fornicators. There's, there's, that, uh, there's that word there in our scripture, fornication, nor idolaters, nor adulterers nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. So, listen to that. If we're caught in adultery, if we're married to another, and, and, we're, and we're not divorced the right way, then we're living in adultery. And the penalty for that, unless you repent of that, will be you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's kind of scary. One last detail for verse 9 before we move on, before we finish. Notice Jesus said that it is only those that divorce and remarry without the one exception or acceptable reason of unfaithfulness or fornication that will be in danger of sin or adultery. Well, what about those that get a divorce and don't remarry? Now, even though Jesus doesn't associate a sin, a particular sin like adultery or fornication with this let's say you get you know divorced let's say your you know your husband is is beating you or let's say you just get tired of him or whatever and you say i'm i'm out i just can't stand it anymore i, I gotta get a divorce I, i'm, I'm divorcing that's it although he says that there's no sin attached with that we do read paul's kind of further commentary on that in first corinthians seven ten. paul says now to the married i command you not i but the lord so this is not from paul this is from god a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart. So he's saying by Paul's time, women had gotten some more rights. Even if she does depart, even if she does get divorced, let her, you could say him too, remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband or let the husband be reconciled to the wife. And the husband is not to divorce his wife. So we see that if we were to get divorce say we just can't stand it i just can't stand her i I just got to get divorced if you want to keep from sinning before god if you want to keep that from that adultery you have to then stay unmarried for the rest of your life and that means if you go to be with another man or woman too let's say well you think i'm going to do god out well i'll just go and i'll just join myself to a man or woman you know we'll be okay well if you live in fornication which is sex outside of marriage then that's a condemnable sin as well too so technically, you either ought to either stay married and work it out, or if you're going to get divorced, you better stay single. Otherwise, you fall into adultery, which is a practice of sin, which will lead you straight to hell. So if someone divorces to stay away from sin that leads to hell, they need to either never be married again or go back to their spouses. And although Jesus and the Word of God attach no sin to divorce without remarriage, doesn't make it just okay in God's eyes. I said this earlier. Malachi 2.16, the Bible says God hates divorce. And you, and you just can't live a lifestyle doing things that God hates. We talked about that in the beginning of our message. If you live a lifestyle of sin, you know, God hates that kind of lifestyle of sin. So we got to, we got to stay together. We got to, you know... We got to make marriage work, guys. Jesus just spoke some tough things to us in this section. Hearing it, I don't know about you, 
hearing all these little stipulations and what if this and what if that and if my marriage don't work out or oh my gosh you know and if you just you know if I get divorced and for just any reason and I go marry another I'm in adultery and that's I'm I'm on my way to hell then because I can't repent because how do you repent from marriage if you've gotten another another remarriage you have to get another divorce and then stay alone you're just a lose lose situation it's just downhill no good kind of makes you think about all that and kind of makes you think, man, wow, I, I don't even know if I want to be married. Wow, I better stay married or if I'm not married, man, maybe, maybe I ought to just stay unmarried, huh? Maybe I just ought to just, you know, hey, you know, that's it. I'm, I'm just going to stay single. Well, if you're thinking that way, know that the disciples thought that way too in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is just better not to marry. I mean, Lord, you know, after all, if marriage is so hard and, and we can't even divorce our wives just because, well then, by golly, it's probably just better not to marry. And we'll get to Jesus' reply on that next week. There wasn't enough time this week, but yes, if you were feeling that way, the disciples felt that very same way. Now, I don't know about you, But me, I personally think it's good. Marriage is excellent for men and women to be in. I love marriage myself. Been married over 19 years myself. I love my wife. I think marriage is a wonderful, wonderful thing. I think it's great for men and women. Not just what I don't think is good is I don't think marriage is good the way Americans are getting married and the way Americans are doing it today. Some of the problems I see. Well, the very first problem I see in marriages in America is people, men and women, aren't consulting God before they get married. They're not seeking God. They're not asking God. They're not going to God first and saying, God, who is that right wife or that right husband for me, Lord? I I just, you know, I don't want to go out there just picking just anybody because if I'm wrong... And I and I and I pick them my way, then I'm gonna, I, you know, things might things are probably gonna turn out bad. So that's the very first problem people need to do and to guard against divorce is let God pick your wife, let God pick your husband. Go to prayer if you're wanting a suitor, if you're wanting a wife or husband. You go to God in prayer, God. I want to get married, but Lord, I don't want to pick out my wife or my husband. Lord, I I'm scared. I just don't want to do that. What if I pick wrong? What if they're not right for me? What if, you know, just, just all we do is argue. So God, bring me the perfect husband or bring me the perfect wife. That's the first thing people are doing wrong in America. They're just not seeking God to ask God what wife or husband that he wants for them. Another thing that's wrong, mostly here in America, people are only attracted physically. That's it. Mainly a woman and a man or a girl and a boy, they see one another and all they are, their basic initial attraction is all sexual. And so what do they do? Not only are they not seeking God, but then they're just basically finding somebody and jumping into bed with somebody and having sex right off the bat and then that's what they think love is. And so then they get married on that type of love, which is erotic love or eros in the Greek, and then that love just doesn't last that long because that kind of love only kind of stays while things are new and fresh. And then once that partner, once that spouse, 
you know, after you're married, gets, you know, older and they, you know, you see them, you know, in another light. Oh, I don't, I don't like them anymore. And they're not attractive to me anymore. And once the attractiveness goes away, what happens is people are getting a divorce. That's the second problem with our country that we have today. I see the third big, big, big problem is selfishness. In marriage, I see that men and women, they just only want it all for themselves. It's got to be my way. And if I'm married and I'm the husband, then it's my way, honey. And I don't care what you want. It's my way. And the wife's the same thing. And in marriage, we have to have compromise. We have to love them and, and, and compromise with the things that they want. And likewise, they have to do the same for them. And it's a give and take. It's not all my way and it's not all their way. We have to come together. We have to put our two ways together and we have to become one flesh and we have to get along. And love in, in spite of the things that you know she or he does that I may not like or you know so on and so forth. We can't be selfish in a marriage. So our last, lastly, we've got all these things compiled upon one another that are all bad. What does that do? That makes a bad foundation. So people are laying a bad foundation for their marriages. They get married and it's all downhill from there because they follow those bad steps. And what's happening is lots of marriages are ending in divorce. And unfortunately, people think that if they try again, and remarry after their divorce, after their divorce, it will be better for them the next time. Even though they don't change their ways and they keep and and they keep trying the same things that they did in the very first time they get married, they try the same things. They're still selfish. They're still all, you know, all about me. They, they it's all about a sexual act. It's all about the sex. They don't they don't think about God. They don't consider God and who does God want to bring me. They follow all these steps. Again for the second time and again for the third time. And what's happening is they're failing terribly. As statistics show again in America, the divorce rate in America, again, is anywhere from 41 to 74% between first, second, and third marriages. It's not working, people. It's not working. In fact, it's just simply very sad. It's really depressing. And it continues to get worse. Broken homes, children are, are you know growing up with only one only one parent. They don't get they don't get the emotional support they need from the from the husband, and they don't get the emotional support they need from the mom. And each person in a relationship brings something into the child. And when a child grows up and they only have a mom, then they only have a woman's perspective on things, and they don't have a man's perspective on things, and vice versa. If they grow up with a man only, then they only have a man's perspective on things and not a woman's perspective on things. And what does that do? That makes for a non-complete person. God made us this way for a reason. Man and woman each bring something into the table. Each bring something unto the table to make the child. Each bring something to the marriage to form the child's personality as the child grows up. People emotionally scarred. Children are growing up with only one parent. What's happening? They're getting married as they get older and they don't think it's any problem to have another divorce because, hey, I just saw mom and dad do it. So it's a downward, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's starting at the top and it's falling downward and it's rolling downhill and it's getting worse every single solitary day. And of course, as we heard today, the most unfortunate consequence of all this garbage of, you know, divorce and remarriage and so on and so forth, because most of the divorces are not happening because there's sexual immorality or fornication. Most, most divorces are happening because, oh, I just don't love her anymore. 
I, you know what, we, I loved her and I don't love her anymore. I, you know what, she just, she just can't see it my way. They're all for petty, childlike stuff. And the statistics, and, and the consequences, what did Jesus say? Those that remarry after divorce and those that marry another after they've been divorced without the stipulation of unfaithfulness or fornication, they're in a perpetual state of adultery. And remember Paul 2 Corinthians 6, 9, all who practice adultery and many other things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. If you continue to be remarried in a state of anything outside of unfaithfulness or any outside the state of fornication, your partner cheated on you, you're in a perpetual state of adultery. And the Bible says there to you that you are on your way to hell because of this. So those that don't repent of this type of sin and stay living that way will be burning in hell forever according to the Bible, not according to me. And how sad is that? And it's even sadder considering the statistics of Americans, 41 to 74%. And I know darn well that most of those divorces are not because of unfaithfulness or fornication. They're just for just garbage reasons. I, well, he says, she said, oh, I can't get along, I don't love her more, just nothing. Practical garbage. If that's you and you're listening to this message today, and you're hearing me speak on this, don't get mad at me. Go to your Bible. Read Matthew chapter 19 for yourself if you think I'm lying to you. These are Jesus' words, not my own. And according to Jesus, if you're in this category, you're in big trouble with God. So please, if you're listening to this message and you are divorced and remarried and it's not because of unfaithfulness, It's not because of fornication on the part of the other party. Then please repent and turn away from this evil in the sight of God. I beg you, seek God. Ask Him to show you how to make the wrong of divorce outside of fornication you're living in right. And and may God have mercy on your soul. Because I take the words of the Bible literally. I don't take them allegorically. I don't take them just as fluff. I take them literally. Please seek God. Ask Him how to make it right, how to make you right, because you're broken. You're broken and you're still broken. And if you're still divorced and you're still remarried, outside of unfaithfulness or fornication, you're in big trouble. God loves you so much. He's calling you to repentance from dead, sinful works. And anybody listening to this marriage or this message that's not married yet, I implore you by the mercies of God to slow down and don't just jump into a marriage unless you have first sought God's face and you know that the person you're, you're with or that you want to marry is the one that God brought you. Because if they're not the person that God brought you, then you're headed for trouble because only the perfect person that God wants for you is the one that you should be with, and that will be the life that God wants you to have. So please, slow down. Don't get caught up in this situation as so many Americans are, or people all over the world for that matter. Slow down and seek God. Ask Him, God, who should I be with? Bring me the perfect wife, please. The one that will be right for me, the one that you want for me.
God loves you so much. And this is what he wants for you. Let's pray. Thank you so much, dear God, for this word. Thank you so much for this message. Thank you so much for your heart, Lord God, that you, Lord, you answered these questions. You could have just, you could have just told these, these Pharisees, you could have just said, hey, you already know this answer. Be gone. You know, you brood of vipers. You could have called them out just like John the Baptist did, but you didn't. You knew they were testing and you knew what was in their heart because your word says that you know what's in the heart of man. But Lord, you answered their question and then you allowed it to be recorded just for us, just for them then and then us now, of course, that anybody throughout the ages could have this awesome, awesome teaching and know how to live right before you and know what you want and know what your will is so that we can please you. Because Lord, without us to even know in your will, how could we know what pleases you? And if we don't know what pleases you, how, how could we be saved? But yet you let us know God's will. You let us know your will. I just pray, Lord God, again now, that those listening would not just be hearers of this message, hearers of this word. And then they, they walk away and they, ah, that crazy guy, whatever. He's just, he's just exaggerating. Lord, I pray that they would see your words in red. These are the red letters in my new King James Version Bible, Lord. Not just any letters. These are the red letters. These are your words, Jesus. And that they would take them literally, Lord. Literally, not just, oh, well, it's not that extreme. But no, Lord, it is. I pray that they would be doers of your word today, not just hearers only. Please, God, I pray you touch people's hearts and cause people to be right by you from what I spoke to you out of your word today. We praise you and we thank you and we love you, God. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Okay, praise God. It's Pastor Ed here, everyone. And I want to thank you so much for stopping by and listening to the message today. It's my prayer that you were encouraged and challenged with what you heard today to be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. Because your life will soon be passed and only what you've done for Jesus Christ will last. Hey, if you live in the Dallas, Texas area, we want to invite you to come to our house church Sunday mornings for our service at 1015. Directions can be found on our website. Also, if you have any prayer requests, questions, or maybe you believe God has called you to support this church financially, please go to gospelsavingchurch.com and click on the appropriate links. I would love to hear from you. God loves you very much. Please love Him back by the way you live your life. And God bless you. Have a wonderful day.